very good to see you all here today. Let me just rearrange the furniture just a little to give my, me some pacing room. Has everyone had a good week? I've had a good week. I've recently started a new job for those, some most of you know that, but I've recently started a new job. And um, one reflection that I've had in starting this new job is it is really like becoming an apprentice again. When I was younger, um, I actually started an apprenticeship when I was 16 as a boilermaker and did an apprenticeship then. And there's a massive learning curve and, you know, there's the challenge of every day seeing new things, being challenged, being asked to do things that you do not know how to do, but being stretched. And then in time, then all of a sudden you know how to do those things. So the relevance of that is today we're, we've just as a church entered into a series about discipleship. Last week, uh, Mark preached a message on vision and mission. Our vision as a church is to see Jesus glorified, lives transformed and hope revealed. Everything that we do as a church, as a leadership, as a group, is always assessed against those things. That's what we want to see happen through our existence here. Uh, everything that we do is to see those things come to pass. In terms of our mission, the, the wording within our um, mission statement, it's a bit bit wordy, but really it can be distilled down to simply that we want to make disciples of Jesus. Our mission is to make disciples of Jesus in our community, for us as a church congregation to be disciples of Jesus. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be really um, tapping into this, looking at it really closely, what it means to be a disciple, how are disciples make, made, who makes disciples. Today, I have the great honour and privilege of sharing with you about why why we make disciples. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Ben Nowak. Um, I'm one of the elders here at the church. I've been coming here for probably about five years with my wife, Lauren, and we have three wonderful children. So now, let me get started. So the real the bedrock verse with this series that we're looking at is Matthew 28. And this is after Jesus had risen from the dead and he had appeared to his disciples over a number of days, and then just before his ascension, he gave the great, famously known as the Great Commission. Now, now this verse is so potent that it's very easy to sort of become overly familiar with it and to sort of miss the power of these words. And I love the way that it starts, remembering who was saying this. This is, this is not... This, this is Jesus having conquered death. This is the Jesus that when he walks into a building, he can walk through the door. And I, see, I remember the words of C.S. Lewis. He said, it wasn't because Jesus was as a, as a ghost to the door, it's because he had more substance than the door. The door was as a ghost to him, if that makes sense. This is the resurrected Christ. And he said these words, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Just that one sentence, Whew. it's a good sentence. And that's the starting point for this series. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I'm going to read that again. It's so good. All authority, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, to Jesus, the resurrected Christ. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you always to the end of the age. And that's the Christ that we serve. And even as we meet together in his name, the one who is here amongst us, amongst us today in our midst is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Now, we'll be looking at more of some of these aspects of discipleship in the coming weeks. I don't want to get caught up in some of the other aspects of discipleship, but in order to give meaning to what I'm talking, what I'm talking about today, I really do need to actually just very quickly just talk about what, what is discipleship, because it's hard to say why disciple unless you've actually talked a little bit about what discipleship is. Now, in my mind, it's always been very clear, just almost by the word itself, that you know, a disciple of Jesus is a, a disciplined follower of Jesus. At the time when Jesus was a rabbi, a young Jewish rabbi that had drawn a huge crowd to himself, disciples after him, these were the people that had given up everything in life to follow Jesus. They had given up all sorts of things in order to pursue Jesus as their teacher and as their Lord. Probably, we don't really use the word dis disciple very readily in our culture. Like, in fact, in some aspects, it might have negative connotations. I think it's probably fair to say. But if, as we go through this series, if you almost think about discipleship and apprenticeship, they're very, in terms of meaning, what it, the, the end result and what it means is very, very similar. So we're, I think, typically going to stick with the word disciple as we go through the series, but always think about what it is. It's a very practical thing. And I, and I love this, and I've used this before in church, and I'll, I'll use it again. In terms of our discipleship after Jesus, there's three key elements. It's the being with Jesus, it's the becoming like Jesus, and then it's doing what Jesus did. And as I touched on when I started, my apprenticeship as a boilermaker and what I feel like is a new apprenticeship the first part is just really watching closely the master, seeing how they do things, how they behave, how they swing a hammer, all those little hints that sort of as someone who doesn't know how to do things, they would say, do this, do it this way. And at the time, you might not understand why, but there's a lifetime of experience that has gone into that instruction. And so we're always wise to actually take on those lessons from the master. Now, in order to actually really get started, this is to understand the why of why make disciples, it's actually a really, really, really big question. Because as I was pondering this, pre preparing for this this week, there was this statement that came to me. To understand the why of why make disciples is to really tap deeply into the heart of God for the world. So I hope that today that this message is not simply about having some sort of the, um, you know, theoretical or theological framework about why and that you can all go home with the right answer, 
but more importantly, I hope that there is actually something powerfully imparted where you understand the heart of God for the world. Because you might have the right answer, but unless you're moved by God's heart in this, it's just head knowledge. But the power of the why is truly to understand and to have your heart transformed to be aligned with God's heart and how God sees the world. So it's a big question and the challenge is how to communicate that to you succinctly today. So there's two aspects of this. One I was thinking about, there's sort of, there's the, there's the macro, there's the very big picture why and then at another level we'll call it the micro, there's sort of a micro why. But to start, I want to start at the start. Because if you don't start at the start, the rest doesn't really make sense. So, in the beginning, in Genesis 1, God made the world. And it was perfect, and it was good. And after he'd completed his creation, well, throughout his creation, God is looking at everything. He's saying, it is good, it is good. He made the, the, the planets, the solar systems, galaxies, the sun, the moon, the plants, the animals. And he's saying, it is good, it is good. Then he created man on the sixth day. And then after everything was complete, God stood back, looked at his handiwork and said, it is very good. And at that point, that was paradise. Man was created in paradise. And we learn also in chapters 3 of Genesis that God walked with man in the garden. There was an intimacy. We also know that they did not wear clothes. They were naked in the garden, yet they felt no shame. And so there's something powerful in that, that in that place of paradise, God was present. It says that God walked with them in the garden. There was, there was an openness, a transparency, a vulnerability between mankind and God, and there was no divide. They had the ability to talk, commune, and God was there. However, tragically, in chapter 3 of Genesis, we learn that man sinned. They broke God's law, and all of a sudden, a dark cloud fell over all of creation. It didn't just affect God's, man's relationship with God, but everything. It's almost like um, if you have a good imagination or if you could imagine trying to, if you were to, to do this with special effects, it would almost be like a, just a wave of darkness swept over everything. A curse lay on the land. And now we live, we live, we live in this world now that has been cursed and that we all suffer the consequences of that separatedness from God. And now it doesn't take, even at work the other day, one of the, my colleagues made reference to um, we live in a fallen world. I think anyone who's sort of lived very long on the earth, you don't have to go too, don't have to, make, don't have to argue too hard to win the argument that we live in a fallen world. And we live in a society of broken families, broken marriages, difficulty in relationships at every level, Mental illness is on the rise throughout society. It seems like there's intractable problems at every level that no one has the wisdom as to how to solve them. About 500 BC, there are a number of prophecies that I want to draw your attention to. One is the prophecy or the vision that Daniel um, unpacked, and that is the vision of seeing all the kingdoms of men, of men and then in the vision as a, as a huge sculpture, image of a man, and then at the feet of that image... A rock carved out of the mountain came, disintegrated all the kingdoms of men, and then that rock grew to become a mountain and it filled the whole earth. 
And that's really a prophetic image of God's kingdom starting small and growing big and eventually being all over the world. So there's many Old Testament prophecies that talk about the coming kingdom. The second thing is in Joel chapter 2 where it talks about in those days I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And in that there's this intimacy where all of a sudden the relationship between God and man which was fractured in the fall is brought back together. We read in the book of Acts that when Pentecost came, those famous words, this is that spoken by the prophet Joel. And we live in that time where because of the the death and the shed blood of Jesus, we can be reunited to God. So what does that have to do with discipleship? Well, to illustrate it, I want to share my testimony. Um, My... Some of you may know parts of this, but I want to share my testimony for the purpose of actually giving some context to discipleship and what that all means. So I was, I was brought up in a Christian home. I have good parents, good Lutheran parents, and they were very devout. They were sincere in their faith, and they loved God, and they always brought us up loving the Word of God, having regular family devotions. But when I was about, um, it was probably year seven, year eight, so I was quite young, year 12 or 13, there was a real rough patch. And I think there's a number of influences that worked at that time to um, really unravel my life. There was a couple of key factors. One, there was an older cousin who, you know, good friends with, very good friends with, still friends with now. But he was, he was getting into the wrong crowd, excuse me, doing drugs um, off the rails as well. And... I, being a young man, it was particularly in year eight that things really became really, really unravelled. One, one thing that happened that was, I guess, to sort of illustrate where I was at at that time, we, well, it's actually quite interesting, just over the road here on the other side of the vineyard, there's a, a hill there, and my dad's cousin used to own that property, and, so, and she developed it, there used to be a house there, and we would come there when we were young, and we would sort of romp up in the hills and whatnot, and just, you know, explore around as kids do. And at that time, I remember I was there with a much younger her, my dad's cousin's son. He was there, and we were up looking up through the scrub, and all of a sudden I, f- I came across some primary production with nail boards on the ground around it. So someone had decided that this was a good spot to, blow, to grow their crop of marijuana. Now, I was pretty young and naive, but I thought this was a windfall. I thought, you know, this is amazing, this is great. So what I actually did was I... Um, this little cousin, he had no idea what it was, went home, phoned my cousin, my other cousin, he came over as quickly as possible, and then here we were, two kids, we jumped on the bikes, told mum and dad we're going for a ride on our bikes for fun, so we rode back here, we would have chucked our bikes somewhere on the side of the road, literally just across here, and then down into the valley, onto the hill, found them, stuffed our bags full of marijuana till they were completely full, and then pedalled off home again. Now... The funny, this is just a little side note to this story, is that, do you know uh, where that kitchen Thai cooking shop place thing is there? I think there's a post box there, or there maybe used to be. We're riding home then, you know, two young teenagers feeling like as guilty as anything, with no helmets on, and all of a sudden I'm a bit further ahead, and my other cousin, I turn around, and there's a police officer, and, and it, he's been pulled over, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, my life in crime came to an end very, very quickly. <laughs> But it's funny how these things happen. So anyway, 
amazingly, like so, he had a, a, a backpack just stuffed full of marijuana. I had a backpack stuffed full of marijuana. And, uh, and the policeman just gave him a warning, and we carried on our way. Now, the importance of that story is simply that that, <laughs> that, was, that was an event that really sort of set things up for my undoing. I, all of a sudden, I, you know, we did what we needed to do, thinking we were pretty tough at school, trying to sell a few bags and everything else. But at that time as well, there was something else happening that I started Year 8 at Concordia College. My dad was a teacher there, and he had a reputation, as some teachers do, for being pretty down-the-line teacher. And as a student starting there and being a Year 8 student, wanting to fit in, I really wanted to very clearly distinguish myself and my identity from my, my dad. So what I did was I was, I think, naturally attracted to the, the tougher crew or whatever, the cool kids. And at that time, there was some of the, you know, drugs going off the rail. You know, just kids doing what they shouldn't be doing. But all in that context, it was just worked really badly against me. And I was rebellious, very rebellious towards my parents. But it wasn't just simply I was naughty. There was like a real emotional damage going on in our relationship to the point where, at some point, my heart... I, I, said, I said to myself, I am not talking to you, to my parents. I'm not talking to you. And I completely shut them off. And I was living in their house at that time. And you can imagine... Um, what that would be like for parents. But that... <clears throat> In hindsight, that period at the time, it seemed like forever. I think there's something about sin and being outside of God's will for your life and being in a low point where your concept of time is different. Anyone who's been depressed or anything like that knows that for someone in that place, that horrible, yucky, terrible place, a day can seem like eternity. When you're in the, but when you're in the centre of God's will and you have his joy and his presence, it seems like eternity is not enough to sort of stretch out that moment. So as it happened, I, um, there's, there's so many other stories I could tell around that. Um, but over a period of things, I'd always believed in God, but I was, certainly was not living like it. And at that, over a process, I never sort of came back to God and suddenly said, I'm going to just do what my parents always wanted me to do in terms of you know, their Christian belief and how they live things out. But there was a real um, bit by bit God was working. And I remember, I, I've heard this story since from my dad, that at that time I think they were at their wit's end and I was always, you know, I would rebel and I'd always feel the resistance, if that makes sense. And I sort of, I think for a rebel, they re a rebel revels in the resistance. If there's no resistance, there's no rebellion, if that makes sense. And my dad sought counsel. There was a magistrate... Um, Kim Boxall, I think he's still a judge. I've seen his name come up. And he's a, a Christian gentleman, does a lot of work in the youth courts and so on. But my dad sought counsel from him at that time. And Kim's advice, Mr Boxall's, Justice Boxall's advice to my dad was to relinquish him to God. And I don't know exactly when that happened, but I certainly have memories of being at home and all of a sudden when I would push and I'd fight all of a sudden there was nothing there anymore. And I think it really brought home the consequences of my actions 
because in that place, most kids at that age going through that, they're not, they're more vulnerable than you think. Like they're not as tough as they want to be or think they are. So over a process, God really drew me back to himself. And there was influence from uh, other relatives that I would, uh, uncle and auntie of my cousin that I referred to earlier. I was reading different Christian comics. And at the beginning, there was not, it wasn't simply that I was wanting to be good. I was, all of a sudden, it came home to me that this book is true. This book, that this is God's word. And if this is God's word, we, we would be very sensible to listen to it very carefully and to honour it and to study it closely and to obey it and to, to not, not trivialise it, not be blasé about it. And at that time, I remember coming to church and God was doing stuff, but we'd come to church, we'd listen to sermons and then we would sort of find a quiet spot, smoke cones and talk about the sermon. So you've got to really be slow to judge when you see stuff happening because you never know what God's doing. But over, over time, bit by bit, God really worked on my heart and sort of those things. It wasn't a matter of just becoming what, doing what a Christian should do, but God was convicting me to let go of those things that I knew were standing in the way of my relationship with him. So my story of discipleship is that sort of sets the basis. You know, I was far away from God and God drew me close. And there was a very intense period of time, probably for, say, about a year after that rebellion, where I just, I I wasn't working or was working part-time. I was probably 14 or 15 at the time. But there was a hunger for God. There was a thirst for his word. And over the period of my rebellion, I had set up strongholds in my own mind of all sorts and descriptions. And it took time to actually undo a lot of that, undo those strongholds. Romans 12 verse 2 says, you know, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And during that time, there was, my discipleship was one of, you know, regular, daily, intimate prayer with God. Reading the word regularly, you know, every day, reading something from the Old Testament, something from the New Testament, reading a psalm, reading a proverb, and just hungering for God's word. And it was during that time that I think God really laid a a formative period in my journey to actually set me up for the rest of my life. Now, fast forward, that was 25 years ago, but the amazing thing about discipling after Jesus is that it never ends and it never grows old and we're never fully there. And I think, if anything, you only appreciate more and more how great the Master is and how much he wants to lift you up. So even more recently, you know, two years ago, let's say roughly, God just was doing a new thing in my heart. It wasn't that I had sort of completely you know, rebelled or shifted away from God, but God was all of a sudden challenging me to come back to that first love, to putting him first and counting the cost. When I was sort of coming out of my rebellion, there was a key verse that I remember just sort of resonated so deeply and challenged me. And if you remember it, there's the, ver- there's a, the text that talks about the would-be, the would the would-be disciples of Jesus. And Jesus, we think about the 12 and we you know, celebrate the 12 when Jesus said, follow me, and they did. At that time, the gospel tells of you know, three other instances at least where Jesus said to someone, follow me. And they made excuses and they didn't. 
And there's three times in that verse where someone, Jesus said, follow me. And they said, I'm, I'm too busy doing this. I'm too busy doing that. This is more important. This is a priority. No, I don't have time to do that. And that struck home to me. I did not, I did not want to be a would-be disciple of Jesus. I did not want to be someone that had heard the call and ignored it. And that was a pivotal moment where I think God worked in my heart and I said, I want to follow you, Jesus. And a lot of those other things just began to fall away. So why? So why make disciples? There's three points I really just want to highlight and open up here. The first one is simply this. Because when disciples of Jesus are made, and you think about your own life and think about the goal of making disciples of those that do not know do not yet know Jesus, the first thing is simply this, that in making disciples, people are reunited with God. And the image, the visual image to this point, is think of the parable of the prodigal son and think of the moment when the son returned and the father ran out to meet the son and embraced the son. That's the first why we make disciples, because people are reconciled to God. Think of that hug of the Father. The second thing as to why make disciples is that through discipleship, it's the process, it's the vehicle, it's the way God has ordained it to be, that we are transformed. We mentioned Romans 12 verse 2 before. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I've heard it said before, we become what we worship. You become what you worship. In discipleship, Jesus is our master. He is the Lord our God that we love with all of our heart, mind, soul and strength and the one that we follow after. And, and that in that following after him, our lives are transformed. He doesn't leave us where we are. And I, I am sure that if we were to sort of talk around in groups today, you would not have to go far to actually find that each of us wrestles with really knotty, difficult things in life. Things where we need the power of God. Things where we need the strength of God. Things where we need the presence and the peace of God. And it's through discipleship that as we're with Jesus, as we become like him, and as we do what Jesus did, our lives are transformed into the image of his son, Jesus. The third point as to why do we make disciples is this. Our life on earth will be over shortly. doesn't matter how you, how you look at it. Even if you live to 100, that's just one thin line in a timeline of eternity. And ultimately what matters is what is eternal. You know. And so in making disciples, we secure we are made secure in god for eternity and that's ultimately ultimately what matters so the three things number one we are reunited with god that's the first why the second is in discipleship we're transformed by god and the third is through discipleship people are set up to be secure for all eternity in the kingdom of god now, what's your story? I'm sure if we 
to ask around this room, everybody has a story as to why they're here today. Everybody has a, a faith journey. I'm sure at some point you were away from God and there was a point where you realised this Jesus is someone that I want to follow. This Jesus is someone that's worth honouring, worth loving, worth following. You're here today and I honour you for that. But where are you at if you were to reflect on your journey? There's a powerful truth that in, G- in Jesus mandating make disciples of all nations, that mandate was to disciples. And so there's this thing that Jesus set up in that disciples of Jesus make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. And that just continues on. So one, there's two challenges here. One is, where are you at? Where, where are you at in your apprenticeship after Jesus? Where are you at in your, your discipleship after Jesus? And in that, do you grasp the heart of God to, for God to reconcile the world to his son? Is that something that moves you? When you see people that don't know God, does it call you into a place of prayer? What's the most important thing to you? Where do your affections lie? What, what excites you? What, do you? what keeps you up at night? What do you think about in those moments when you just have time? Are your, is your heart and your thoughts just filled with a vision of Christ and his goodness and his glory? You know, every day do you make space for God? Do you spend more time watching... Netflix than reading Nehemiah. We're all on a journey, and I think in really talking about the why make disciples, we, we need to remember those things. It's to bring people back to God, the hug of the Father, to bring people into that place of journeying into trans, being transformed into the likeness of Christ and then securing people for the kingdom of God forever. My call to you today is this, that as we enter into this series over the next few weeks, that we, I I think it's timely as well, that this is sometimes, you know, at the beginning of the year, that we, each of us, just think about where we're at in our apprenticeship after Jesus. Where are we at? Do we still have that first love that excited us and that we were so enamoured with when we first became Christians? Or... Over the passage of time, have we become distracted by other stuff? Either not necessarily evil stuff, but things that just distract and choke and crowd out the goodness of God in our lives. My call to you today is in your discipleship, there's three Ds. Three Ds to remember. This is the call. The first one is that in our discipleship, as a church, as as individuals, that it would be daily. I know God is gracious, I know that. But there is something powerful when, you know, if you were to say, I don't need to eat every day, that is true. But if you didn't eat every day, you would not be better for it. You know, you become starved, you become weak. And there's something so powerful when every day, and I think, I I find... Sometimes I've been getting into the habit of 
getting up first thing and just praying. And there's something powerful about just spending that time with God on your knees, that devoted time to say, God, I give this day to you, everything to you. That in our discipleship after Jesus, that we would prioritise the things of God, that it would be a daily thing. The point I'm trying to make is here that if you look at your life, a daily average, an average day in your life, what are your habits? Would it reflect that you're a disciple after Jesus or would you have to sort of look at the average of 15 days to even realise that you read the word or pray or seek the presence of God or worship him? But to look at a day in your life to say this person is a serious disciple of Jesus and they pursue Jesus with all their heart. The second D is deeper. That we would be disciples who are going deeper in our walk with God. That we're not happy with some superficial surface level, but we are people that want to go deep in our walk with God. And this sometimes takes time. It might mean actually pushing aside things that you enjoy and might even be good, but to simply say, I'm not going to do that and I'm going to seek God in this time. That we're going to go deeper as a church. And the third one is that we would be a people who are devoted that it wouldn't just be a flash in the pan and that over the next week that you, um, you have a d- daily time with God and a deeper time with God, but a devotedness that at the end of this year that you would be able to say, wow, I grew more in God in the last six months than I have over the last six years. There are places that God wants to take you that you haven't even begun to imagine yet. But what God is waiting for you is for you to seek him. There is a reciprocity here where we need to seek God. You know, he, he answers those that cry out to him, that we would be devoted and that, you would, that we as a church would be seeking Jesus daily, seeking a deeper relationship with God and being devoted to Christ. In closing, I want to read from Revelation 7, 9 to 10. And maybe you could all stand as we do this. In Matthew 28, we read the Great Commission, where Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. In Revelation 7, we have this snapshot through the prophetic vision that was given to John of eternity now use your imagination to place yourself here after this close your eyes if you wish and just imagine yourself being here with this in this scene and after after this i looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is why we make disciples. 
Imagine yourself in that crowd and you're there singing those songs of worship to Jesus and you look around and you recognize familiar faces. Your family, people in this church that you know and you recognize them. But more than that, you recognize people that at this point right now in time do not know Jesus. But you see them surrounding you in that worship around the throne. And this is why we are called to make disciples, to populate heaven. There truly is a multitude of people waiting on the other side of your obedience. And Jesus' calling to us is to be disciple makers. Now, just to seal this, and as we enter a time of worship, I just want to pray. Pray for, pray for myself, pray for us as a church, pray for us as a body of believers. And just enter into a time of worship. Open, open your hearts. Do what it means to you to be open to God, to say, God, I'm hungry for you. I want to be a disciple maker after Jesus. I want to understand the why. I want to know your heart for the lost. I want to grow in you. I want this to be a year of growth and maturing in my faith like never before. Lord Jesus, we love you and we honor you. And Lord, this morning as a church, as a congregation, we want to be disciples after you. We want to be people, Lord God, that know you, that spend time with you, and that in that we're transformed into your likeness, and in that we do your works. I pray that today, Heavenly Father, that in this place that you would impart something to every single person's heart, that, Lord God, that there would be a fresh stirring, that, Lord God, that you would enliven our conscience, God, the Holy Spirit, that when you knock on the door, that we would open it. May our knees be bowed before you. May our ears be open to what you are saying. Make us an obedient people. Prepare us for the coming season. Equip us mightily, God, for everything you want us to do. I pray for your blessing and your favor on your people today. And Lord Jesus, I pray for our community and for our friends and for our family and for those that do not know you yet. I pray, Holy Spirit, soften their hearts. Prepare the way. Equip us as a church to be disciple makers. Move our hearts. Grip our hearts with the why because of your love for the world. Let's worship God. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.